I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. Today we go to Spain to talk with a fierce and lovely woman fighting human trafficking and seeing some incredible life transformation happening among women who hail from around the world. But before we go to Spain, I thought it appropriate to first visit Scotland the place from which my guest is from, but also the place from which uh, a lost story of a woman is from that I want to bring to you today. She is also an abolitionist fighting human trafficking and was also Scottish. So I want to talk to you a little bit about a woman named Donaldina Cameron, um, whose last name says it all. Actually, her full name is Donaldina Mackenzie Cameron. Her family in the late 1800s first left Scotland to settle in a Scottish settlement in New Zealand and were there just a couple of years before they decided to try California uh, during the gold rush. And so they moved their family and six children uh, to California and Donaldina, affectionately called Dolly, was one of the youngest kids. And so here is this Scottish family um, raising up a new generation in a new state of the U.S., California. And if you know anything about history, you know that the Chinese uh, were flooding California to help in the gold mining and also to, to later help with the railroad. And so there became quite a, a Chinese settlement there, but also, as you know, a lot of distrust and, um, just outright banishment of the Chinese. Some of the earliest immigration laws were written because of the Chinese settlers. So there's all of this going on as Donaldina comes into adulthood. She is a passionate Christian and spends a year uh, with a friend in San Francisco and becomes um, quite an activist as she comes face to face with the Chinese sex uh, trade. All of these girls who are being brought into San Francisco and forced to work in the brothels unsuspectedly. And it basically turns her into an abolitionist and she remains uh, for the rest of her life. She forgoes marriage and family, which is a huge deal in the Victorian era uh, from a prominent family, to remain single and stay in San Francisco rescuing Chinese girls from brothels. Over the course of her time there, she is able to rescue three thousand girls. And the cool thing is that her entire life is uh, written in a beautiful book uh, called Fierce Compassion. And it's written by a mother-daughter pair, Kristen and Catherine Wong. I highly recommend it. And the house where she um, did her ministry work and housed so many of those rescued slaves still stands today and is a museum. So the next time you're in San Francisco, you should go check out um, Cameron House. So Donaldina Cameron is not only an incredible uh, woman, heroine, fierce and lovely example, she's also, I don't know, perhaps my relative, because here's the cool thing. My grandmother's last name is Cameron. And the more research I do into our family lineage, um, the more I see 
that she held from Scotland as well. And not only that, that's my paternal grandmother, but on my mom's side, I have recently learned that um, on her mom's side, our first a relative who settled in America. It was not even America at the time. It was early 1700s, and he was from Scotland, and he settled in North Carolina. And so, who knows? Maybe I'm related to not only Donaldina Mackenzie Cameron, but also my guest on the show today, whose name I will only share as Fiona, just for safety reasons, um, for the work that she does in Spain. But you are going to hear all about the world of human trafficking uh, through a European lens. This woman has been um, working on behalf of women who are being brought into Spain for well over a decade, while also raising five kids and helping her husband to pastor uh, their church there in Spain. He is Spanish, she is Scottish, and she is uh, an incredible example of living out fierce and lovely. So listen in and enjoy being pastored by Fiona. It's so good to have you here. It's such a privilege to get to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you, Beth. For me, it's a privilege to be here and be able to share. I know, live in Colorado. I know, it's <laughs> exciting, yeah. Is this your first time to Colorado? It is. It's my first time. I just arrived yesterday and we went down. It's such a beautiful place with the mountains yes. and snow. I know. And yeah. We I'm do excited. live in a beautiful place. <laughs> it's not your first time in the States, though, no, is it? No, okay. I've been in the States, but not to Colorado. Okay. And yeah, I was really excited about coming and yeah, and seeing it. Yeah, yeah, it's so fun to get to meet you, and I cannot wait to just ask you all the questions that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start. I would love to hear a little bit about how a Scottish woman, mm-hmm. right, yes. ended up in Spain, mm-hmm. and it's been quite some time, hasn't it? Well, yes, it's been like 34 years. Okay. So I'm actually more Spanish than Scottish almost, you know, because I've lived there for so long. Right. I moved to Spain, uh, I was 18 years old, and my parents bought an apartment in a very touristic town called Benidorm. And so those who have travelled to Spain and know a little bit um, about cities and that there, they'll they'll know about Benidorm. It's uh, like a, a, a top place for the beach and for you know it's on the Mediterranean coast it's an ideal climate beautiful beaches so they they bought an apartment there for like a hot, this was over. a vacation a vacation no, home no they no, moved. no they, they actually moved they actually okay. moved from Scotland to Spain and I went along with them and I've got two sisters they stayed back in Scotland so when I got there I actually didn't really like it I didn't. I wasn't accustomed to the climate. It's a very different culture than in Scotland, mm-hmm. and I didn't speak the language. I didn't have many friends, and, and you, you know, were eighteen, so you had yes. finished high school. What That's we call right. high school? Yes, yes. I finished okay. high school, and I was just seeing, you know, what I was going to go on and study, and I was planning to maybe go to university. I was thinking of doing maybe tourism or, um, at that time, journalism, things like that. But really, this you know, there's certain events in your life that sort of change your 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 the the, the route that you're on, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so, being there, um, it, it really made me think more of my future. What did I want in my future? Mm-hmm. And I had this. Uh, I mean, I was a Christian. I have my Christian faith, but I think it was kind of I was in a comfort zone, you know, where. Mm-hmm. where there uh, wasn't a lot of challenges so this was my first big challenge of you know what I wanted to do so yeah. uh, I decided to go to Bible school and study In theology um, my first option was not Spain because I didn't speak any Spanish. Okay. But finally, I discovered there was a Bible school, an evangelical one in Spain. So I, I, um, it's now called the um, the Center of Theology. So it actually has a university uh, degree. But when I did it, it still wasn't like acknowledged mm-hmm. um, by the the, the, the government. So. Um, yeah, so I decided to go there, and I studied and I learned Spanish at the same time. Oh my goodness, yes. so all the classes were in Spanish? All of the classes were in Spanish, yes. It was a challenge, it was I'm a sure. challenge. I, I managed to get the books in Spanish and also in English, 
And so I was just reading, I was comparing and, and teaching you know, yourself I just picked as it you up. went. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> so you finished the Bible school. Uh-huh. Yes. And then what happened? I met my husband at the Bible school. Okay. Yes. And he's from Spain. Okay. He was living in Barcelona. And so we got married. Mm-hmm. And, and just two weeks later, he took on his first church that we'd actually helped to plant. Okay. During the summers and mm-hmm. that. So, so um, and since then, we've been pastoring like in different cities, different places, um, you know, doing a lot of church planting. Mm. And from the beginning, I think I was always very involved in sort of the social needs and mm-hmm. the needs of the community, what mm. I could see round about. Um, and, and just in a natural way, you know, I would I would sort of see the needs of, of there was a people that were refugees and different things, uh, different situations, um, a lot of domestic abuse or, um, uh, you know, just generally people that are in really tough situations and that very often the church doesn't really know how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would kind of take them under my wing and not mm-hmm. in a really structured or organized way, but at least, you know, we try to be there for them. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a little bit of how I got introduced to, the, uh, to human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're pastoring a church for years, decades, really. Yes. Having a family. You were telling me you have five children. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Four sons and a daughter. And then your natural bent is to see, you just have an eyes for the marginalized and the hurting, it sounds like. Yes. And so out of that, how long ago are you then first made aware of what's going on with the human trafficking stuff? This was now about 18 years ago, Beth. Wow. And... For me, it's important if I could just say something in here, because even though I was sensitive to all of these issues, my parents had worked for the government and we'd taken in a lot of um, people with political asylum who'd been asylum seekers who Mm. had been tortured in their countries of origin and they'd stayed in our home while they were finding other places to stay. In Scotland. In Scotland. Okay. And so from an early age, I I was kind of exposed to to people that were in big needs. Mm. And this definitely did, um, you know, help me understand more um, these kind of situations. But then personally, um, when... We had two children, our first two sons, and and I had felt like life was almost perfect for me. You know, I I was happy. Um, I felt my my second son was now starting preschool, so I felt like I had more time. And you know that we love as women to have our families and things, Mm -hmm. but we also very often want to be involved in other things. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was more active in church. And all of a sudden, I took sick. Hmm. And I, I mean, when I say I took sick, I took really sick. Like in 24 hours, I was in a hospital lying on a, I was like a, a wooden plank. I couldn't move. Um, I was throwing up. I had a temperature. I was in pain. Um, they thought I had um, meningitis. Mm-hmm. Then they discovered it wasn't that. And they found that I had hernia discs in hmm. my neck. Wow. And, um, you know, it's like you're just, the world falls apart. All that you've been working towards in a moment's time can completely change, you know. Mm. And finally, um, they dealt with the, the problem with the hernia discs, but unfortunately there was an underlying illness that was degenerative and incurable, mm. and it affected my autoimmune system. And so I ended up being sick for seven years. And in the total, I was like a year in hospital. Oh my goodness! And so this this just completely changed my vision of, of life itself. Sure. You know, it's like all of a sudden you realise that not everything is important, and you start getting your priorities mm-hmm. of what really matters in life, mm-hmm. what you really want to invest your time in, mm-hmm. what what is you know right. of value. Right. And. And, 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 and really, I have to say, you know, I'm grateful to God. I thank God for that period that was very difficult for myself and for my family mm-hmm. when I was expecting to have the twin boys, because the third and the fourth are twin boys. Mm-hmm. To give you an idea, I could only see now, I could see like 10%. I had 10% vision. I was barely able to walk. 
I was very, very depressed. While pregnant, or you're saying after they were born? No, no, before. Before. This was before, okay. and during the pregnancy, and after the pregnancy, because oh. this is like seven years saga, right? So they're so in the middle of this. They're in the middle of okay. this, and it was really hard to understand, how am I going to look after another baby? Then it turns out to be twins. Oh, my goodness. And you just have to say, you know, well, you know, God's got to be in control. And so while, when I had the twins, that they were about one, maybe two years old, is when I was introduced to this first case of human trafficking and at that time I had no idea what human trafficking was you know well nobody did 18 years ago no no that's right so I meet this lady through the church well she was actually in a park and she was crying sitting on a bench alone crying and so someone from our church saw her went up to her and said, I know someone that can help you, and gave her my phone number. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the pastor or the pastor's wife can resolve I, everything. I know someone who's been crying for seven years. She'll cry with you. That sounds like you're in the midst yeah. of your own journey, yeah, and and mm-hmm. you're still the one that pe- yeah. people refer others to. So, you know, some people think, some women think, oh, I would like to help, I would like to do this, that, but look at my own life, my personal situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not able to, I have to sort all these things out. But very often we're wrong because mm. sometimes when we're in a hard, hard situation, you can still, you, you know, sometimes it just makes us a lot more sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not about doing everything for someone. It's just doing something, you know, mm-hmm. being of a help. So, so this lady contacted me and I went to her house to visit her. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll never forget the impact it had on me because I'd seen a lot of needs. I'd helped people who were refugees, different situations. But the deep trauma that I saw in this woman, I'd never seen before. Mm. Her, her home was just a small table and a chair, no decorations, no curtains, um, you know, um, that was just basic furnishing. And she sat and she literally trembled as she spoke to me. I saw her hand shaking. Mm. And she told me she was from South America and she, uh, it was actually her brother-in-law who offered her a, a job in Spain. Mm-hmm. She was in a difficult situation. Uh, her husband was drinking, could be violent. She had two young kids. Mm. And usually, you know, the victim of trafficking is, is, it's you know, people say, how does she become a victim? It's actually because very often they're victims of so many other things right. in their lives mm-hmm. previously that kind of makes... Them and have a predisposition mm-hmm. to becoming a victim, mm-hmm. and they're trying to escape situations. So then you want to believe when you when you hear of a possibility to get out. And this was a family member, her brother-in-law. So why wouldn't she trust him? You exactly. Know? And so um, he said she was going to that he set up a hotel and that she would be working in the hotel. She was going to be a waitress and work in the kitchen and. He said, you know, you don't need to worry about clothes or anything because you're going to wear a uniform. Just bring a small bag and we'll be there to pick you up in the airport. And um, everything seemed really, you know, there was no suspicion that anything mm-hmm. was, was going to be otherwise. So she travelled to Spain. When she arrived in the airport, he was waiting for her and with another guy. And they, um, he says, give me your passport because this is a dangerous country. Someone could steal it from you or something could happen. I'll keep it in my hands and she got in the car and and this story is really um, you know as she drove on she said she started to sense something wasn't right and she said well give me wh- where exactly are we going to you know and she was going to far away it was in the south of the country as it got darker and she asked so many questions um, they actually said to her no you um, uh, just you know, be quiet and, and do as we say. And they took her out and they blindfolded her. So she wasn't able to identify where she was. She couldn't see the sign. She didn't know which city she was in. And she thought, right, this is really, you know, what's happening. She started to cry and say she wanted to phone home. She wanted to speak to, you know, her children. Uh, as soon as she arrived, they quickly put her through the door and took her up to what was a brothel. His, um, his hotel, as he named it, was actually a place of prostitution. And so they put her into a room, and there, on the bed, there was lying, it was, you know, like sexy underwear, high heel shoes. They said, put all that on and come downstairs for your first client. Mm. And she said, no way, I've never worn anything like that, I, I'm, I'm not doing this. So then they started to threaten her with her children, and, um, and 
yeah, she was raped. So that, and they said, every time you say I'm not doing this, this is what will happen to you. So this woman was so completely broken, mm -hmm. and in the end, she was six months that she didn't leave the room because she was so desperate to try and escape, try and get out. They decided we'll just lock her in there. So she mm -hmm. ate in that room. She washed in that room. She had there was a bed and a toilet. So everything she she never left that room, and that had such a negative psychological effect on her mm -hmm. that she really almost lost her mind. Wow! And, you know, finally, she managed to get out. It was actually what one thing that happens to a lot of women in prostitution, or that they hope for, is that one of their clients might fall in love with them. Mm -hmm. They get these regular clients that will go like every weekly, right. for example, and so they get kind of like an emotional bond. Mm -hmm. um, because very often the men who are seeking a sexual relationship in prostitution are also seeking for because they have emptiness. Mm -hmm. there's, there's different factors, right? Sure. But in this case, it was like that, and and so he actually paid her trafficker um, uh, the money that she was told that she had a debt to pay back and so he paid that he took her out and we were we got involved in this without knowing exactly what it was I just thought it was a bizarre story a horror mm. story mm -hmm. and that how could all these awful things have happened to her mm -hmm. and I never imagined that there was hundreds and thousands of women in Spain suffering similar situation wow. so we, we did a lot of things now I look back Beth I think we did a lot of things wrong because it was like the first cases first situations sure you don't know what you're looking at no 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 we managed to get her kids over with her to Spain mm. and finally both in, in the, the two of them she and this uh, ex-client uh, came to know the Lord they both got baptized and they went to live in a very small village she changed completely her name she never went to the police and we didn't have any relationship at that time we didn't we wouldn't know who she was meant to go to anyway mm -hmm. so she's she set up there with her family and as far as we know that's and she stayed yes. with this client. Yes. I mean, ended up mm -hmm. building a life with this person. She did. She did. Maybe it's not the ideal thing. You know, I personally felt at all times, well, you know, is this really love? Mm -hmm. You're not really in love with him. You feel more like you owe him your mm -hmm. freedom. You've, mm -hmm. He's got you out. But in the end, she said no, that she did. You know, maybe it wasn't a love at first sight, but... Um, you know, as they both rededicated, well, they both gave their hearts to Jesus. I guess God can always give a new beginning. Mm -hmm, it right. was a new start for her, but also for, for him, him too. For yeah. him too. So we can't be judgmental mm -hmm. as to say you can't be with him. He was a client, right? He was, or he's because unredeemable he's, because he's repented, and he's mm -hmm. that's right. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And it's an unusual, you know, um, end mm -hmm. ending. But it was it was a happy ending mm -hmm. for him. Yeah. So this is 18 years ago, mm -hmm. and what begins to happen as a result of this first encounter for well, you? Well, yeah, from, from that time till the next time I was introduced to trafficking, there was like a lapsus in time. And it wasn't something I was even investigating or looking into, because you have to remember that for me it was just this random situation. Sure. And, you know, she right. was the only person in the whole world that's ever had an experience like that. Mm -hmm. But then I started to hear more about human trafficking and, you know, and realize uh, about it. I, I was given a book by written by Beth Grant mm -hmm. that's called Beyond the Soil's Curtain. Mm -hmm. And I would definitely uh, recommend to anyone to read about. It's the story of Project Rescue and how it starts in India. And... Um, and I started to read and I just, you know, these books you start to read and just don't put it down. Yes. And I really felt like God was speaking to me, mm. that I had to do something about situations like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so we'd set up in 2000, and this was now nearly 2009, and we set up an NGO mm -hmm. uh, to fight slavery around the world. Okay. And, um, so just a small little vision. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that we're going to solve everything around the world, but we wanted to have that, you know, the world as a... A, a global focus. That's right, a global focus. Okay. And I travelled to India, and I met with Beth Grant, and with, um, you know, I got to know Project Rescue there, mm -hmm. and we started taking medical teams over, mm -hmm. and they're... Um, from, the, from the Spanish church, you and your husband were pastoring? Yes, okay. that's right, yes. 
I got a team together of ladies from the church mm -hmm. who would get together weekly just to pray. Mm. And they would start to pray against um, trafficking and the brothels and um, clubs. Mm -hmm. and that's what they called in, 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 Sp in Spain where there's women, you know, they offer you a glass of, of alcohol and then it's, you know, they've got the rooms there and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so, so that te you're aware at that point that this is happening in Spain, just like in right. India. Yes. So though you're going to India, you're praying over Spain. That's exactly, exactly okay. that, yes. And I did a course on intervention in human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And now this is a really, um, are we okay? Mm -hmm. uh, this, this as well was a really important event in, in my life. Um, and because I did this course and on the, on, it ended on a Saturday and we were sitting in the class it was semi-presential so a lot of it was online but there was one day you had to go to the class and they were talking about a girl who had been trafficked to Spain she was from Nigeria and uh, in the end she was uh, found the, the police found her and she decided to denounce the traffickers and they killed her father in, in Nigeria that was one of the threats they do sure, to the African women is if you ever tell anyone, if you ever say anyone, you will die and your family will die. Right. And so she'd be under these threats and so they, they actually killed her father. And it was a newspaper paper cutting about her story and how this girl had disappeared. No one knew where she was. That She wasn't in contact with any NGOs nor with, you know, no, she just disappeared. And I thought, how awful, all she's been through, and now she's not really receiving any the help that she may need. Mm -hmm. Where would that girl be? Mm -hmm. And it stood out to me, you know, this, this story. That was on the Saturday. And on the Sunday, uh, I travelled with my husband to Barcelona to be in the international church. And we were just making a visit there, you know. And so I was, like, speaking a bit of chit-chat with the, the, the pastor's wife, in this case, before the meeting started. Mm -hmm. And, and she said, so tell me something about yourself, Fiona, what are you doing? And of course, I was just in the middle of all this course and I had this overwhelming feeling that I wanted to do more and do something and about trafficking. So, and I said, well, yeah, I've just done a course on human trafficking and we're, we have, and we're setting up some, some groups to pray and to help girls that have been trafficked. She said, that's a very strange thing to do. And I said, yes. And she said, actually, I've got, I think there's a girl from what something she said to someone, there's a girl that's one of those kind of girls here. She's sitting over there. And she pointed at her. And so, of course, I went directly and sat beside this girl. Right. And, and I said to her, you know, you don't know me, I don't know you, but I think you're in a situation that you need help. Mm. And I just want you to know that I'm here to help you. I held her hand. And she just began to sob and sob mm. and cry. And she said, I've been coming to church now for... Um, she, I think it was four or five months. I tried to commit suicide three times. No one knows my story. Mm. She told me her name and she told me the story. She was that girl from the newspaper cutting oh from the day before. You know, things you can say, oh, coincidence. Well, what kind of coincidence right. is that? Right, I know? have goosebumps. And so, yeah, uh, and so mm. we were able to help her. And today she's living in a country in Northern Europe and she got married. She has two kids mm. and they really have their lives completely. And so I was able to then start to help her. We helped her through the telephone. I called her every day or she called me. Uh, the pastors there in that local church, the international church, the church, they got involved as well. Now, there was a missionary working there who started to help her as well because she needed people close by. Mm -hmm. And um, But I realised, you know, just how complicated it was that this woman really needed help in every area, every aspect of her life. She was full of fear. She had post-traumatic stress. She had panic attacks. Um, you know, she, she just needed help in every way. Mm -hmm. and, and we realised that, you know, we had to have we had to be better prepared it was more than just taking her hand and saying I mm -hmm. want to help you mm -hmm. and so um, that made us uh, really say okay well, what will be the next steps forward mm -hmm. and so the next step was that we start to work in a detention centre okay and the detention centre is a place where uh, both men and women go through it's a deportation centre everyone that goes in there has a, a deportation sentence to be um expelled from the country 
Okay, so they're they're in Spain illegally. They don't have papers or visas, and so they're on their way out. That's right, that's right. And so, of course, a lot of women who have been victims of trafficking, they don't have the documentation. And, and, you Mm -hmm. know, um, there is a filter where they'll be asked, is anyone, you're in prostitution, or it could be forced labor, has anyone forced you to be in this situation? But of course, because of fear and distrust, right. they'll always say no. Right. And especially when it's the police, because mm-hmm. you know the mafias as well tell them, oh yeah, the police are being bought. You know, they, yeah, you can't trust them. They'll just deport you. So they keep quiet. So mm-hmm. what we do is we go in with, a, a, first of all, it's like a welcoming kit, a basic humanitarian kit mm-hmm. uh, that has everything that the women can need like toiletries uh, new underwear because if they come straight from prostitution they just walk in with what they have on and they don't have any ch- anything to change into they right. don't have any clothing so we give them clothes and things as well and uh, you know um, and we get to know them and so we'll we, we go in three mornings a week and we can so start to to know their situations and we can try and detect the cases of or victims of trafficking. Mm-hmm. Once we detect that the, this woman is a possible victim, then through the law enforcement, if she's willing to um, tell her story mm-hmm. and give certain details to the police about what's happened to her, then we can get her out within four, 24 hours. Uh, and so we've been there now for seven years. Wow. Working in a detention centre. We're still going in. I've got a faithful team of, of, of women, you know, these... And like you say, fierce and lovely women yes. who who say, okay, it's it's not easy. It's not easy because you're exposing yourself to very sad stories. And there's a lot, you need a high level of frustration because you can't help everyone. And sometimes there's situations that you say, wow, this is so unjust. That person will be deported or whatever, but there's nothing you can really do about mm-hmm. it, you know, and mm-hmm. we're not in a completely just world. Right, right. But at least those women to be able to have someone to listen to them mm-hmm. and to take their hands or to say a prayer with them mm-hmm. if they like, or even if they want to, we can take them a Bible or self-care mm-hmm. books mm-hmm. and to know that there's a card, we have a 24-hour telephone mm-hmm. and they know that they can call us at any time, any moment. Mm-hmm. And another thing that we do is for those who will be deported, or actually say, no, I want to go back, uh, we can try and find a place of follow-up for them, whether it's a church or whether it's an association, someone that's helping working with women in their country of origin, Mm -hmm. so that when they go back, they don't find themselves again in the vulnerable and difficult situation they came from. Yeah. So tell me, how, how does this work, generally speaking? They, they're, they're met in their community, in... you mentioned Nigeria, you mentioned South America. So the traffickers actually coming into their community, recruiting them. So tell me a little bit about the pathway to how they might end up in this uh, detention center. Yes. Okay. Well, um, the country of Spain is the first country in Europe as a country of final destination for victims of trafficking. We're the second in Europe as a country of, of transit into other countries. And so there's a high demand for prostitution. That's the reason, main reason why traffickers set up their, uh, they would call it business, you know, we don't call it that. It's, it's uh, organized crime, right? Right. But, um, and so girls are coming in from all over the world. We've seen women from over 50 nationalities. Mm. They're from Africa, South America, Central America, uh, Eastern Europe, all of the, uh, the ex-Soviet um, Union countries, mm-hmm. Russia, mm-hmm. Asia, mm-hmm. really from all over. Mm. And um, generally, the I say generally because we, we, we can't say 100% because there's always exceptions to the rules, but in general, it's, it's people from these countries of origin who are part of these mafias or, or organized crime and the, um, recruit the women from their countries. So they operate in the country of origin. They have a route well organized of how to get her into, in this case, Spain or other European country. Mm -hmm. And they have others from the mafia in the country itself in Spain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so um, usually it's people from her own nationality. It's Mm -hmm. not like it's people 
I don't know, Arabs going into Romania to get the Romanian girls. No, it's Romanians themselves. Okay. You know, that are, and unfortunately, there's quite a high percentage of uh, people that the girls already know and trust, such mm. as family members. Wow. That are involved in this as mm. well. Uh, not always, mm-hmm. not always, um, but in a lot of cases, yes. So then that adds to the trust, right? And 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 later, it's a higher level of betrayal as well. Mm. You know what they've gone through, right? And so, for example, in Nigeria, um, uh, they will recruit the girls and and say, you know, you have an opportunity to come to Europe, and we have to think that in a lot of third world countries. To come to Europe is a little bit what it was like to come to America years ago. Mm-hmm. But perhaps it's still like that for countries like Central America, South America, to get to the States, right? Mm-hmm. It's still a right. gold mine. Yes. Uh, and so for these girls around Europe, Spain is very close to the north of Africa, Eastern Europe, with it, with it being within Europe, there's not like borders that they have to go through passport controls. Mm-hmm. And then they have a lot of relationship with South America because of the history and the language. Mm. And so um, it's a an easy country for, for them to, to get the women into mm. and they tell them that they're going to come and be nannies or they're going to study or they're going to work in a hotel and you know a whole lot of different things some of them actually even make out contracts that look like they're real with a stamp with signatures and so what they basically do is um, for example the, the girls in, in Nigeria they will tell them yes you're going to come and look after this, these children or work in the house whatever and um, they'll take them to do a voodoo ritual and uh, because they know that that is going to be a powerful tool of fear hmm. to keep them under their control okay and and the voodoo ritual is quite a horrific thing that they go through hmm. and once they've done the voodoo ritual then they'll say okay we'll give you your visa your passport we'll pay for all your transport we'll do everything for you but when you get back once you arrive in your destination uh, little by little, you'll have to pay us back the money. Of course, the girls will say, yes, of course, when I'm working, I'll pay you back the money. And um, and they, they, uh, they're not aware of how much that debt is going to be, usually, mm. you know. And, mm-hmm. Or they tell them in euros, and they have no idea. They've got the nera there. They don't know what euros are. Yeah. And so um, in the voodoo ritual, they'll say to them, if you don't pay back the money that it's going to cost for you to get to Europe, Mm -hmm. then you will die, your family will die. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certain things, bad things will start to happen to you. And they have a whole list. It's like like an agreement that they will go along with, a pact. Right. They'll they'll say, well, right. So so once they they have to do a very difficult journey through the African countries, and very often on that trip, they will be beaten, they get raped, mm. they'll see people being murdered. It's a very dangerous journey, mm-hmm. and it takes them several months mm. because they're going by bus, by car, a lot of it they have to go by foot. They travel through the deserts, the desert of Libya, they have to sleep on the roadside in the desert. They're hungry, they get thirsty. Uh, once they arrive, either in, in in Morocco or in Libya, which are the main countries from which they'll depart to get mm-hmm. into Europe, uh, there's like some camps there where they can be days or months staying mm. in these camps, and and most of the girls get raped while they're there mm. in these camps, mm. and so it's uh, you know a lot of trauma, traumatic um, events that happens to them, and from there they're put on these small boats. Mm-hmm. These boats are like dinghies they're made of rubber oh my goodness and, and that's they're what they're crossing about the sea. eight to twelve people in them and they put in 50 to 100 people oh, wow. and so they actually sit on layers of people on top of you mm. you can't move and you go out in the middle of the night these people can don't know how to swim and there's thousands of people dead under the mediterranean sea uh, we've had some horrific stories i remember one girl actually was raped in the camp she gave birth in the camp and she went with a little baby on the boat. It died on that boat, and they tossed the baby over into the ocean. Can uh, you imagine? It's just uh, so many. You know, this is all... I'm saying this because these things are all happening before they're actually before. sexually exploited. Oh, my goodness. And right. so it's not like everything starts with the sexual exploitation. For the horrific it sounds to us, for them it's just one more thing in their mm-hmm. lives. You know, right. One more part of their suffering. Mm-hmm. And so when they get to... They either reach Italy or they reach Spain, the coast... 
and um, they might go through the refugee camps but in the end they get out and the mafia contacts them and they will take them to their destination and we have to remember that at this point they want to get to their destination because they believe they're going to be a nanny they're going to get money they're going to work right and so they're, right. they're, they're, they're cooperating in arriving at so they're place. given like a phone number contact this yes. number when you finally arrive and you'll get yes. your job. Usually they're actually escorted. They, they have an escort that will be with them, a controller. Okay. And, and, and if not, um, on the trip they have like, people from the mafia in different points where they can stay overnight, where they'll take them to the next place or drive them to the next place. So there's always someone on the route that mm-hmm. they can stay with. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's all part of it, organised. Right. Oh, but wow. they will have the telephone number as well to, mm-hmm. to contact and for them to pick them up or tell them how to get there and mm. uh, once they arrive is when they discover what really is going to happen okay and they don't have a way out they don't have anyone they don't know anyone they don't have their documentation the documentation that has been made for them is probably false and mm-hmm. uh, they they don't speak the language and and immediately the they will tell them in the case of the Nigerian girls remember the voodoo ritual and your promises. Hmm. You have, you can't go back. You have to do this. And they actually repeat the voodoo practices in Spain. Hmm. Some of the girls have had these voodoo rituals on a weekly basis just to keep them under that control. Hmm. And so, um, and, the, and the, right now, for a girl in coming from Africa, her debt, because you get told that you have a debt, and they'll mm-hmm. tell you it's because of this, your trip, the boats the trip from Italy or wherever, mm-hmm. and it comes up to like 50,000 euros. Mm. I mean, that's something like $55,000, right? Mm-hmm. How, is, how is this young girl from a small village mm-hmm. going to be able to pay back that money? Mm-hmm. It's a debt that she'll never be able to pay. And on top of it, they have to pay, as well as that debt, you also have to pay every day for the bed you sleep in mm-hmm. and for your food, for your clothes that they supply, right. your hair, your makeup. Everything is supplied by the mafias mm-hmm. and all at high prices. Mm-hmm. So they make it look like it's all legal and that she has, you know, to do that. So, um, you know, it's girls come from places of poverty. In South America as well, there's a lot of poverty. A lot of women who have many children and just don't have enough to feed them mm-hmm. or to give them an education. And so they're vulnerable Mm-hmm. to these traffickers who all they have to say is hey you know this right. can change we'll help you mm-hmm. and they all have a very sweet side to them to mm-hmm. make them believe in that right they're charming yeah. and they're just exploiting women's hope for a better life yeah yeah for a exactly. better future yes right. so this the level of trauma seems unbearable for yeah. them I, I can only imagine what it's been like for you and your team to to be doing ministry alongside of these heavy stories for as long as you have. Um, let's let's end with focusing on some of the hope and success stories that you have been able to witness, stories of redemption. And you've mentioned a few that have ended up so well. But tell me just one right now that maybe a story of a woman you've walked alongside of who you're just she just brings a smile mm. and reminds you this is why I do what I do yeah there's a lot of stories Beth there is hope there is hope I can't say 100% make it through but a high percentage do mm. and these women that when someone's listening today to us they can say oh I just feel so much pity I feel so sorry for these girls but actually, when you get to know them, you don't feel sorry for them because you discover they're so resilient mm. that they are women, courageous women. Mm. And they have, you know, a lot of strength. And over and over again, they'll get up on their feet and go forward. So mm. just with a little bit of help that we offer them, they make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, the, the ability to remake their lives. Mm. And especially for those who, you know, through our local church, want to receive spiritual help as well. Uh, you know, once, because like you say, it's such deep trauma that um, even through psychological or psychiatric help very often the women need Mm -hmm. but there's also a spiritual area that when someone has faith in God really helps them see the future with hope Mm. I'm thinking of the story of a girl um, named Beauty and um, she was one of the first girls that came through our program 
and she had been trafficked uh, first of all to another European country from Africa mm-hmm. and then from there into Spain. She, um, her story is very sad because they were extremely violent to her and they would beat her so badly that she still has today she has scars all over her body of where they whipped her. Mm. You know, when she didn't bring in enough money, she had to give 100% all of the money to them. She mm-hmm. never earned anything for herself. They put her out on the streets 365 days a year. It didn't matter if she had a fever or if she was with her menstruation. She was out there on the street. Mm. And in the end, she was taken from nearly all the cities all around the country and... Ten years later, she discovered she had uh, she'd taken sick. She she had AIDS, mm. and so uh, she thought, well, now I'm going to die. There's no hope for me. Mm-hmm. I might as well run away. Mm. So the fact that she was diagnosed with this this illness gave her courage to say, this is it. Up to here, I'm going to I'm going to run. And I'm so nothing she escaped. to lose. I'm nothing to lose. That's right. Mm. So she escaped, and. Um, and the police found her and they found her with no documentation and she wasn't willing to speak she just cried and so she was taken to the detention centre can you imagine after 10 years of being sexually exploited your whole life ruined and that in the end you're just taken to a detention centre to be sent back to where you came from you know Mm -hmm. step one Mm -hmm. and where she was going to have a lot of rejection and also be in danger Mm And so during our weekly visits, we met up with her and she told us her story. And her main concern was about her illness Mm. and that she would be deported to Africa and she would not uh, have any access to the medication she was going to need. Right. And she said, I'm going to die. So for humanitarian reasons, we managed to get her out. Mm. And she came into the New Beginnings home. And um, we really were wondering if she was going to live because she was so thin she hadn't taken any treatment for HIV, mm-hmm. and so uh, she she really was very, very poorly sick. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we did was we took her to the clinic to get all of her analysis and start up a treatment for her. Mm-hmm. We worked a lot on her nutrition because she was undernourished, mm-hmm. so we started giving her all the fruits and vegetables and the nutrients that mm-hmm. her body needed, mm-hmm. the rest that she needed, and she began to come along to church. She had already been a believer in her country of origin, but because of all that had happened to her, you know, it seemed like God was far away. Right. So she she reconciled with God. She mm. she came back, you know, to the Lord, and and she said she just was a girl with so much faith. And mm. uh, you know, we always tell the girls, oh, you know, God can help you. Uh, if you would like prayer, you know, we believe that he could help you in different ways. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they really give you lessons because mm. she said, yeah, I do believe. And she wrote a list to God of what she needed. And within that list, it was uh, she wanted to get her legal documentation. She wanted to learn to read and write and learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. She wanted to become a nurse. She wanted to have work. She wanted to get a husband to have a family. Mm. And she wanted her own family in Africa to become believers as well. And, mm. and so I looked at that list and it was like, wow, all of these <laughs> things are kind of difficult, right? Mm-hmm. But she said, well, with God, nothing is impossible. I said, that's right, that's right. So she started to pray. And, you know, God started to answer each one of those things. She got her mm-hmm. documentation. Mm-hmm. She studied hard. She became an auxiliary nurse. Mm-hmm. She managed to get work. She met her husband mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. And he turns out that he's a African, but mm-hmm. he's a, a pastor as well. Mm-hmm. And she got married. Her family, in a miraculous way, well, they, they came to know the Lord. And, and now she has, she has children. And they're actually um, they're, they're helping us in our projects and with the mm-hmm. new girls that come in, especially those from Africa, mm-hmm. because she's able to say to them, I do know how you are and where right. you are because I've been there. Right. But look what God can do for my life. You mm, know? Wow. So she, for me, is an example because it's right from the start to the beginning. You can see mm-hmm. how uh, you know she's been courageous and how she's come forward mm-hmm. and how how God really can heal us from from 
even the deepest wounds that we have. Mm. And if someone's listening today, you know, there's so many women that I meet, Beth, that you think they have all their lives together and everything looks so good, but underneath it all, deep inside, they really feel like, man, my life is a mess. You know, I don't even know who I am or uh, they've had really awful experiences that maybe they've not even shared with anyone. And you think, how will I ever overcome this? I want to tell you, you can overcome it if you, you know, you believe and be willing to ask for help when you mm-hmm. need it because there are other women that want to, to, to offer just that hand or to pray or to give advice, you know? We mm-hmm. all need that sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I see in, 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 in the case, in Beauty's case, she was a victim of trafficking, but then very soon she was what we call a survivor. We don't believe in treating the women as victims. I don't really think it helps anyone to feel like you're a victim for a long time. To begin with, the first few days, okay, a pat on the shoulder, a hug, we love you, that's terrible, all what you've gone through. But you can't live your life feeling like you're a victim. Then, you know, you have to get up and keep on forward. Mm -hmm. So she was a victim, she became a survivor. Mm -hmm. But now I don't consider her a survivor. She's a conqueror, Mm -hmm. you know. She's become Mm -hmm. a conqueror in so many things in her own life, Mm -hmm. but also for the lives of other women as well. Yeah. She sounds like a fierce and lovely woman. She is, she is. And just for one we've got so many stories mm-hmm. but just for one person that's recuperated like that mm-hmm. it makes it all worthwhile right wow well what what a great way to end our conversation I could go on and on and uh-huh. on and I'm sure you could too so many stories such yeah. rich um experience that you've had and what a privilege to get to work alongside of God in this work there and with these women so thank you so much for sharing with us today a pleasure thank you wow I did not want to end that conversation I could have gone on and on not only listening to her stories but her accent am I right wow what an incredible ministry and an incredible God we serve who is able to rescue and redeem lives not only of women who have suffered Uh, exploitation, but also some of those men, right, who are also redeemable. Um, I just love it. Love the ministry. And if you are interested in learning more, I will share um, organizations and books in the show notes for you to go and to learn more. Um, I just encourage you to continue to learn about this global crime of human trafficking if you don't already know and consider what might your role be in all of this? What might um, your designed Um, self bring to this issue that I believe God cares so much about. You know, in my book, A Voice Becoming, I quote Donaldina Cameron because she so impacted me. And she said, our talents are diverse. Our opportunities differ. Our pathways in life diverge. But our master's call to service is the same to all. All fields are his And the promise is unfailing, and the command is explicit. It was a call to rise up and step in, to put uh, our faith to action. And if there's any call I want to give to you today, it is the same, um, to just consider what part you might play in all of this. Um, Thanks so much for listening. I, I just love bringing to you women who are doing amazing work. And they might not be the women or the organizations that you see books written about and see all over social media, but they are women who are just taking one step of faith a day at a time. And you know what? I believe you are that kind of woman as well. I believe that um, all of us are doing incredible things and using our lives in incredible ways and are being fierce and lovely because it is how we were designed to be. So thanks for joining me. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.